Amen. Thanks, Deborah. It's fantastic to have uh, such wonderful talent in our church. It's a beautiful reminder in times like these that God's eye is on the tiniest little sparrow and that we can know that he watches over us as well. When we feel anxious, when we feel isolated and alone during these times, God is continuing to be Emmanuel, God with us. That's an important truth to remember this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of Acts today with um, Acts chapter 5, a real doozy of a text today. I was listening into some of our Zoom calls with our uh, small groups this morning, and they were just uh, really wrestling with this text, and they were interested to see how I was going to try to tackle it today. So uh, before we get into that, we're going to start this new series called Reckless Obedience, Boldly Following Where the Spirit Leads Us. You know, reckless is one of those words that very rarely, if ever, is used in a positive sense. Remember all that controversy over reckless love? Should we sing it? Should we not sing it? God's not reckless. Well, I'm going to try to put a positive spin on the word reckless uh, throughout this series in June. It may sound like an oxymoron, reckless obedience, or, or not an, an oxymoron, an oxymoronic phrase, I guess. How can someone be both reckless and obedient? Are those two separate things? Well, reckless Again, it, it, you know, it has these bad connotations, reckless driving. I'm sure none of you have ever been pulled over for reckless driving. Uh, reckless endangerment. These are not good things, right? These are not, I'm not advocating for being reckless in that sense. But the dictionary defines the word reckless as uh, referring to a person in their actions, meaning without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action without thinking or caring about the consequences of that action. Kind of a come what may attitude, maybe reflexive, uh, not thinking through it, but just doing it. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Now, trust me, obedience is something that we take very seriously in my household because we're raising three young children that God has entrusted to our care. Why do we want them to be obedient? My wife spent a lot of time attempting to help our children to become obedient children. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's a sense when we read these texts that we're going to be in for the month of June that we see uh, these people who fail to obey the commandments of God because they are more concerned about the consequences. They think too deeply about what may happen to them if they obey. So in that sense, I'm advocating for reckless obedience. These people in these texts that we're going to see today begin to weigh the commands of God versus the consequences of obedience, and they decide it's not worth following God's ways. Instead, they choose their own way, which they feel will be better for them. And of course, it's not. We're going to see people in Scripture over and over again, even going back to the Garden of Eden, who choose their own way over God's way. We, we see this in the people of Israel, and now we see it in the church in Acts. We see people who are supposed to be God's children, and yet they choose to obey their own way instead of obeying God's ways. You know, Morgan and I, again, are, are raising, we're in the trenches right now, and this whole obedience thing, and we're trying to, to help our kids obey without thinking about it or without questioning, and Sometimes we'll tell our kids to go do something and their first reaction will be, what? Or you've probably heard this before, why? Why? 
Explain it to me. We're trying to teach them that it doesn't matter why. And, and don't say what, just say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and go do it without thinking and without questioning. Just go do it the first time. Again, that's a battle that we don't always win, maybe rarely win, but <laughs> it's a daily struggle. But we know as their parents what's best for them. And, and we have their best interest at heart. And, and the prayer that we pray is that they will come to trust that, to know that, and to believe it in their hearts that when we tell them to do something, it's for their own good. Do you see where I'm going with this? Maybe God knows better than we do. You ever think about that? You ever think that his commands may be because he wants what's best for us and he knows better than us what that may be? Therefore, what's required of us, I'm advocating for a reckless obedience, one that doesn't care what the consequences may be of obeying God, because we know that whatever those consequences may be, it is better to obey God than self or any other man even. So my prayer, again, is that as we look at these passages during this month, that we'll learn to obey God the first time, just like we tell our kids, and to obey him daily and in consistent fashion, without hesitation, without counting the costs, and decide that we are going to follow him boldly, come what may, into the commands that he has given us. Because we know that Following God's ways will lead to flourishing and lead to abundant life, both now and eternally, because God's ways are infinitely better and higher than our ways. You know, the, the Lord often calls to my mind during these times, this, whenever my pride gets a hold of me and I, I, think, I think I know better, I, I often think about Proverbs 14 uh, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man. This has got to be what we should do. Here's the right thing to do. But in the end, its way is the way to death. <laughs> a lot of times things that I think would be a great idea are, are really destructive ways. Following God's ways will lead to life and flourishing. We can trust that always. So uh, we're going to start again with this, this text in Acts chapter 5. Again, this is a text that, that I've never preached on, and I, haven't, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this passage from Acts 5, ever. Charles Spurgeon, he was the prince of preachers, right? This British Baptist pastor, by the way, he was one of us, uh, in London, this huge cathedral. He compiled these um, anthologies of preaching. It was called uh, 20 Centuries of Great Preaching. 60 volumes, thousands of sermons, not one sermon on Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 that we're going to cover today. Not one single sermon on it. It's, it's definitely not a text that I would have chosen, but it's one of those passages that helps me know that God is the author of the Word of God because if I was writing the Bible, I would have left this out. Any reasonable human would have left this passage out because it's difficult and we don't like what it has to say necessarily. But it's clear that the Lord has it in there for a reason. There's something for us in it today. So I want you to open your mind, open your heart to whatever the Spirit may be teaching us today. I had a wise seminary professor who told me that, uh, he told our class that whenever we encounter texts like these in the Bible, and there's a lot of them, if you actually read through the Bible, there's a lot of texts that are problematic to us. Texts that, that rub our modern sensibilities the wrong way. 
This professor said, whenever you encounter a text like that, a text that you are bothered by or disturbed or you can't explain it, you don't understand it, he said, when you hit a text like that, set up a little altar there. Set up a little dedication to God and just worship and say, God, you are so far beyond me. Your ways and your word are so far beyond any human comprehension. And I just worship you for your goodness and for your greatness. And that's what we're gonna do today because I don't understand this text and I'm not gonna be able to explain it in a way that may satisfy you today. That's okay. God is bigger than that and he can handle it, I promise. So last week we closed the sermon by introducing this figure, Barnabas, in Acts chapter four, verse 36 and verse 37. We saw Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a priest, a native of Cyprus, a Greek, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas becomes a rock star in the book of Acts. He accompanies Paul on all these missionary journeys. He's always encouraging everybody. He's just a great team player. He sells this field, gives away all that he has. He's a, a great guy. A lot of believers are doing this. We're told in Acts 4 that a lot of new converts are selling their possessions and laying everything they have at the apostles' feet, not so that they can build cathedrals, but so they can care for the poor, so that they can take care of the marginalized and those, those outcasts who have no means to sustain themselves. The church should care for one another in those kind of sacrificial ways. It's an exciting time. The end of Acts 4, everything's going great at First Baptist Church, Jerusalem. We see that the apostles are just rocking and rolling and God's doing amazing things. And every day, new converts are being made to the faith in Jesus Christ. It's an unstoppable church. We saw last week how that church was full of unity, grace, power, and care for one another. Great, exciting, positive message last week. This one may be a little more difficult, okay? So bear with me. I've seen this happen in churches, and you've probably seen this too. In, in seasons and in times when ministry is going great, things are rocking and rolling, the church is unified, our enemy, Satan, can't abide that. He can't stand it when churches are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So he gets riled up and he comes and attacks those churches in a very uh, intense and pointed kind of way. He moves in to disrupt what is happening and he moves in with a vengeance. So he starts here in Jerusalem, remember the, the beginning of chapter four, he was inciting the authorities in Jerusalem against the apostles and, and Peter and John get arrested and there's this persecution that begins. But of course, that persecution only served to give Peter and John a wider and, and more credible uh, audience and a platform from which to proclaim the gospel. And it just, the, the, the steamroll effect just happens and the freight train of the gospel just moves unhindered. So now Satan attacks from within the church, from within two of the believers with, that are already part of the church. He uses a husband and a wife, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. The name Ananias means God is gracious. That's the, the etymology of, of Ananias is God is gracious. God has given to us more than we deserved. God has given to us more than we could have ever earned on our own. He's been gracious. But Ananias in this text contradicts his own name in a very uh, pointed way. Look at Acts chapter five, verses one and two here. 
But a man named Ananias, God is gracious, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. On its own, nothing wrong here. No sin involved here. He sold a field, he kept part of it for himself, and he gave part of it to the apostles. No harm, no foul. There's, there's really nothing devious going on here. Ananias and Sapphira, however, we know from the next few verses, probably saw the, the acclaim and the accolades that Barnabas received when he sold a field, did the same thing, and he laid all the proceeds from that field at the apostles' feet to be used for the church and to advance the kingdom through the church. So they agreed to sell their field and say, here, Peter, look, we did the same thing that Barnabas did. Isn't that great? We sold a field and now here's the money we got from it. Everyone around them would, would think, great. They must have given the entire amount of that field to the church. What a, what a great thing to do. But Ananias and Sapphira kept a little for themselves as well, though. Maybe that's a win-win, they're thinking. Hey, we're going to get all the acclaim for putting this money here in the church, and we're going to end up with a little cash in our pocket as well. It's genius. It's brilliant. It's deceptive. It's devious. It's prideful. It's concerned for their own reputation, and it's sneaky. But before we judge Ananias and Sapphira, let's, let's be clear about a couple things. First, we don't have all the facts in this passage. Were Ananias and Sapphira truly believers? Were they regenerate converts of the church? We don't know. Only God knows that. Thank God it's not up to me to be the judge of anybody. I can't tell if my own wife uh, can tell she's regenerated because she shows grace and love to me and my kids every day. I can't tell about our church members other than the evidences of God's grace that I see in their lives, but only they can know for certain if they've really been converted by God's grace or not. That's not for me to judge, thank goodness. I don't want that job, that's God's job. Second, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We know that all of us are in the same sinking boat of sin and that's why we need a savior because we can't save ourselves. So what were they thinking? What were the Ananias and Sapphira thinking here? We can't know for sure. Uh, maybe they just wanted to fit in at the church. I can relate to that. As a new pastor, as a, as a pastor who's been here for three years, I, I still want to fit in and have people like me. Maybe they, they wanted special recognition from the leadership of the church. I can relate to that too. I want our deacon board to be excited about what I'm doing. Maybe you feel that same way. Maybe they got swept up in this kind of bandwagon effect. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's selling their property and, and, and giving their money. Maybe we should do the same thing. I can relate to that too. Trying to be like everybody else. Maybe they, they craved applause and acclaim. I can relate to that. Maybe they were immature in their faith and they overestimated their own ability to overcome their sinful nature. I can relate to that too. Third and, and most important thing to keep in mind as we read this text today, the, the point here is not to judge Ananias and Sapphira anyway. Again, that's, that's God's job. 
You know, only God knows if, if they were truly his children or not. The point of this passage is so much deeper than what Ananias and Sapphira did. The point of this passage is a lesson for the church. The point of this passage is to help us today in June, this weird 2020 year that we're in, to, to realize what God is teaching us about how to be the body of Christ. What is it that God wants us to learn? Let's keep reading here. This is where it gets messy, okay? Ananias lays his gift at Peter's feet thinking, all right, let's bring on the applause. But Peter doesn't smile at him and say, wow, thank you so much, Ananias. Look at verse three. Peter sternly says, I assume, Ananias, why has Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Really in verse four there, Peter is emphasizing the voluntary nature of giving to the church. No one's under compulsion to give everything to the church. Again, it would have been fine if Ananias and Sapphira had said, you know, here's half the proceeds, but we got some bills to pay, so we're going to keep half of it too. That would have been fine. But instead, there was deception. There was spiritual deception. And Peter makes it clear at the end of verse 4 there that this deception was not only to the congregation, it was to God. This was not something that the Spirit prompted Ananias and Sapphira to do. It was something that Satan prompted them to do. The, the sin was, was the spiritual deception and the lie. And that grieves the Holy Spirit who now indwells the church. Remember that? They, they could have been honest again, but this calculated lie and, and deception is the issue here. And here's the thing with lying and deception. Sin always begets sin. Sin always begets destruction. Sin inevitably leads to death and destruction every time. And look at verse five and six. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay, I know this is harsh, right? This is, this is a, a tough sentence that the Lord pronounces upon Ananias. It's not Peter who kills him. This is a sort of divine judgment that happens in this split second. It probably really surprised Peter, is my guess. If you're bothered by this, I get it. I, I am too in a lot of ways, but let's keep reading, okay? Verse seven. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. This gets worse, okay? <laughs> Not knowing what had happened. No one told her. No one warned her. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I emailed our small group teachers uh, the curriculum for the lesson that's based on this text today. And 
one of them replied, I don't want the curriculum to this text. I don't want to deal with it. This is such a, a terrible passage. It's such an awful thing that happens. How could the Lord be so harsh and, and judgmental? Here's the thing to remember. God's ways are meant to liberate and lead to freedom. Jesus is so harsh on the Pharisees and on the authorities who seek to put extra burden and shackle the people of God in chains of slavery once again. This passage isn't meant to be a reinforcement of this idea that if we don't act right, God's going to zap us. That's not the gospel. That's not what this passage is saying either. So get that in our heads first. The gospel is about freedom and liberation, not being good so that you don't get struck down because that, that's not true at all anyway. This obviously is a, a lesson for Peter. He's a rookie pastor, kind of like me as well. And, and I'm still new at this and I make mistakes all the time in, in pastoral care kinds of situations and conversations, but I can't ever recall rebuking someone to the point of death. I don't know a lot about pastoral care or ministry. I'm no expert, but apparently this didn't go well for Peter. I wouldn't have counted this as a win if I was Peter in my ministry uh, handbook. Peter, remember Peter had just been shown this unbelievable radical grace after denying his Lord and Savior three times in a row, just as Jesus prophesied, even though Peter said, I would never deny you. And then he does it. And then he's restored on that beach as the disciples have a charcoal uh, fire going and they have a fish breakfast together. And Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. And he restores him back through this radical grace. Peter, who'd been shown that grace, doesn't seem to extend it here in Acts 5, does he? You know, I, I, I think, again, the point is not to judge the character of Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, neither is it to judge the character of Peter. That's not the point here either. The point here is, is not the character of these humans, but what is the character of God? What is the character of the Holy Spirit? What is God up to in this passage, and what are the, the practical implications for having the Holy Spirit now indwelling his people? And what does that mean for us today as a church to have the Holy Spirit here among us? Let me give you a few lessons that I see here for the church that I think we should learn from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. The first lesson is divine judgment leads to a reverent fear. Now, when the Bible talks about fear, it's not like terror, like, oh, I'm scared. That's not what it's talking about. This kind of fear means a holy and proper reverence. It, the best definition I can think of for this kind of fear is to realize who God is and to realize who we are. Realize who God is. He is supreme. He is master. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. We are dust that he has breathed life into. We are more broken and more flawed than we ever dared to, to expect or to believe. And he is more loving and more gracious than we could have ever have dared to hope. And, and what's fascinating is the word in verse 11, go back to verse 11, great fear, the word is phobos, right? In Greek, phobia, we know that. But it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter two, when the spirit first shows up. Look at Acts two, verse 43. Awe came upon every soul 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is a beautiful thing. 3,000 people were just added to the church of, of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And now we see awe comes upon. It's the same word, phobos. It means a proper, respectful reverence and an understanding of who God is and who we are in light of that. I love how John Piper defines this kind of fear. He says this kind of awe and reverence of God corresponds with humility and lowliness and sensitivity of heart. The sheer majesty of God, as well as the holiness and justice and power and wrath of God, cannot be approached in a cavalier spirit. It would be insane to think we can just stroll up to the creator of the universe and have a cavalier spirit. We are blind if we think we can do that without trembling. I think that's right. I really uh, think that's a wise way to say it. The second lesson here, the first one is that the divine judgment of God leads to a proper reverence. Second one is the unstoppable church is a holy church. A church that is not holy is a stuck church. We know that if a church is going to be unstoppable, it must be holy because the presence of the Holy Spirit in us changes everything. He makes us holy as a body from the inside out, both individually and corporately. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple by, by taking that holiness away through sin, God will destroy him. Sin leads to destruction. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's important to remember that if we're going to be an unstoppable church, we have to take holiness seriously. In our culture, this is not a very popular thing. But look what happens once the judgment takes place on Ananias and Sapphira. Look at the church commits to holiness. The Holy Spirit reigns. And look what happens in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders. Again, signs and wonders. Evidence of the Holy Spirit in power were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together, unified in Solomon's portico, part of the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Verse 13 said no one dared to join them, and now it says that more and more believers are being added. I think this means that they weren't, they, they, no one dared to join the authority of the apostles, but they were joining the church in droves, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. He's so full of the Holy Spirit that just his shadow passing over someone can make him well. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Praise God for healing that comes through the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. Lives are being changed for eternity because the church is holy once again. What sins make a church unholy? What, what sins are particularly damaging to a church? According to this passage, Point 2A really is that hypocrisy poisons the church. It absolutely is toxic to the fellowship of Christ. Spiritual pretense, it, it diseases our relationships within the body of Christ. Starting with myself, I've said before, 
I'm not perfect and I'm nowhere near uh, what uh, you know, a lot of people perceive me to be. I wrestle with sin just like any of you wrestle with sin. And Satan would love to have you believe that you're the chief of sinners. And I would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Ephesians 4, verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, the, the pretense, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. I'm broken. I'm fallen. I'm struggling. For we are members one of another. We talk a lot about being vulnerable in our small groups and saying, I'm wrestling with this sin. I'm struggling in this area of my life. I feel like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. My pride has become a burden I can't bear. My anger and resentment at this person is poisoning me. That's so important to be vulnerable and honest, to speak the truth with our neighbors. Not only does hypocrisy kill the fellowship within the body, it also sends a terrible signal to those outside the body. We know that a lot of outsiders look at the church and say it's a bunch of hypocrites, and unfortunately, they're often right. Point 2B, not only does hypocrisy destroy the church, but greed, greed destroys fellowship. You know, we talked about how in Acts chapter two, the fellowship, the koinonia that the church was experiencing came at a price. Fellowship is costly. They were sharing sacrificially with one another. Greed destroys that kind of fellowship by only looking to take care of myself. Greed is the sin of never having enough for me, always having to accumulate more and more. That's the great lie of our consumer materialistic culture that says the way to happiness is to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. It's a miserable way to live. And it's a lie from the pit of hell that advertising is set on selling us. So in, in self-interest, greed says that we defy what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 say. Look not only to your own interest, but look also to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more significant than yourself. Finally, lesson three here is that no church is a perfect church. I say that every time I invite people to join uh, Woodmont Baptist Church. We're not a perfect church. And guess what? No church is a perfect church because why? It's filled with people and we are broken. And working with people is messy. I can tell you that from experience. We are flawed. And any church is gonna have its issues. It's okay to say that and to acknowledge that. It's not okay to remain there though. We want to move towards holiness. It's okay to, 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 to say we are broken because I'm tempted to look at other churches that are bigger and shinier than, and flashier than ours and say, they must have it all together. They must be a perfect church. They're not perfect. They have their issues too. I promise you, every church does. But I'm learning that we shouldn't stay there, that we're moving towards holiness and how important that is. Even First Baptist Jerusalem is not perfectly unified or sanctified as evidenced by Ananias and Sapphira, which is a warning for us. Woodmont's not perfect, but we are on a journey. That last slide, Miles, we're on a journey where our divine judgment over our sin leads us to a proper awe and fear of God. We're on a journey where we're trying to be a healthy and effective church that it pursues holiness and takes holiness seriously that sin is not tolerated because we know it's going to lead to death and destruction. And we know that no church is a perfect church, but we're on that journey 
towards sanctification, towards becoming healthier. Are we going to get there? No, not until Jesus comes back. But until that time, we're going to struggle and strive and journey forward, even in times of uncertainty, of unrest, of pandemic, of violence. And we're going to move forward in a way that brings hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that even in this difficult text, you have lessons for us about how to exist as your church. Oh God, I pray that we would move forward as Woodmont Baptists in a world that desperately needs your body working effectively in healthy ways. Help us to understand who you are and have a proper, holy, reverent fear of you, oh God. And help us to understand that if we're gonna be effective, we have to take sin seriously. We have to pursue holiness And God, we know that we're not going to be a perfect church as long as uh, we're still here on the earth. But when you come back, we know you're going to finish making all things new. So we pray, Lord, come quickly and finish the work of restoration that you started 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray now. Amen. Thanks for watching today. We're so honored uh, that you would tune in. We pray that you'd be blessed as you go in peace to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We'd invite anyone out there who's struggling, uh, anyone who has a question about faith or salvation or God in general, call the church, 615-297-5303. Someone's standing by right now to take your call and to to pray with you if you need that. Uh, Go to our website, fill out a connection card. Let us get to know you and your family more and and see how we can minister to you during these difficult times as well. Maybe it's time for you to surrender your life to Christ for the first time and lay down your own will and say, God, I want to obey you with reckless obedience. Maybe you know you need to come to salvation through faith in Christ by grace of God. If that's you, then call the church right now. We want to talk with you and see how we can be a part of that process and help you uh, follow Christ as Lord and Savior. We're going to sing now, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. It's a hymn of commitment, a hymn of response, saying that I'm going to obey the commands of God wherever he leads, I'm going to go. Maybe that's not true for you right now. I would encourage you to sing this as a prayer. Oh God, help my unbelief. Help me to believe that your ways are truly better than my own ways. And wherever you lead, I'll follow. Let's sing.